You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I almost said welcome to Shane Garrett's. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Shane Garrett's and I'm Let's Farmanize. <laughs> I'm all that and more. Uh, I'm Ivan Stewart. And, <laughs> and Ivan Stewart is joining us again for this episode. He was he wouldn't take the hint out of the, the last episode, so he's still here. I could not be subdued. Anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit about the alpha-gal syndrome or the mammalian meat allergy. We are so excited to announce that we are joining the Pharmacy Podcast Network, the number one platform supporting pharmacists and pharmacy students. We'd like to give a special thanks to all of our listeners who have been with us since day one and whose feedback and support has brought us to where we are now. Thank you so much. We hope you never stop learning, always stay curious, and of course, enjoy the episode. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. What do you guys know about allergies? Cal, I know that you have a fake allergy to raisins. Is that correct? It is not a fake allergy, but yes, I do have it. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your experience with raisins. So raisins, dried fruits, dried pineapples, anything dried fruit, for some reason, I break out into hives. But you can eat undried fruit. Yes. Ivan, okay. do you think that sounds fake? I mean, there are stranger things that have happened. I just, I mean, I guess maybe, I don't know, maybe there's like a bacteria that changes something in the fruit when it dries. Like it has an opportunity to colonize and maybe it enzymatically changes something. I don't think I need to join I, the circus. <laughs> just like, hey, check this out. So do yeah. you have any allergies, Ivan? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I did, I have had some things that I've been told were allergic reactions before, but they've never really returned. I have had before, I'm assuming this is pollen related, but I don't get it every year during pollen season where I'll just get a continuous dry cough that requires a narcotic cough suppressant. Like it won't go away with anything other than a proper narcotic cough suppressant. Okay. And then one night, it was junior year of undergrad. I was sleeping and I woke up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden my eyes were just on fire. It hurt to have them open, it hurt to have them closed, just intensely. And you know, of course the student health center was not open at two in the morning. So I just kind of had to suffer through that for like seven hours until they opened. And I got there and they said it was an allergic reaction to something and they told me, cause I was kind of freaking out. I was like, what's going on with my eyes? And they told me to take some Benadryl or something and probably go away and to clean my eyes out and it did and it's never happened again. I don't know what it was, why it happened, but it was terrible. You know, there's been a lot of cases of pink eye around, <laughs> around High Point lately. Probably, it was but anyway, so, <laughs> so you, hit, you hit some of the symptoms of, of allergies that I want to talk about a little bit. Some of the itching of the eyes or face, hives, swelling of the mouth, throat, and tongue, which luckily you guys have not experienced. No. Right? And that's, that's some of the more dangerous stuff that, uh, that comes from allergies. So it's caused by the hypersensitivity of the immune system to substances that are typically harmless, whether they be airborne in the environment or food like raisins. 
<laughs> Sorry, that's such a weird allergy. I, I can't help it. <laughs> Who needs raisins anyway? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm an oatmeal raisin cookie guy. I see. I, that, that, that's just me. I was a big dried pineapple kid growing up, and that, like, I miss that. Interesting. Yeah. That's such a weird thing to, to you know, like. Look, don't judge me. <laughs> okay. Over the past 20 years, there's been an increase in the prevalence of food allergies, as evidenced by the three people in this room. One of us has a food allergy. That's 33% right here. It's pretty happy. This is the embodiment of the, the population of the United States. So, just kidding. A very We're diverse sample. We're not representative of anything. The CDC estimates the prevalence has increased 50% between 1997 and 2011. When were you born? I'm just kidding. We're not going to. It's a two. It starts with a two. 2000. Okay. I do. I know. Uh, there's an interesting hypothesis floating around that posits the cause of increased prevalence of allergies holds a causative inverse relationship with improving hygiene in developing countries. I'll explain the theory because I, I think it's really interesting, but here's where we will start talking about immunology. And I'll start out simple. I don't think it's going to get too dense. Remember T helper cell differentiation? Vaguely. Okay. Uh, so TH1 cells are a lineage of CD4 plus effector T cells. You'll hear about this next I've, semester. I've had it to a certain degree in undergrad. Um, there was, I had a teacher that was really enthusiastic about that kind of thing. What is it, like CD4 and CD8? There's like cytotoxic yeah. and... Uh, yeah. What is the other one? The four are the, the helper cells, okay. T helper cells. The effector T cells primarily responsible for cell-mediated immune responses against intracellular viral and bacterial pathogens. Th2 cells are linked to allergic responses with eosinophilic activity. Here's a pop quiz. Which immunoglobulin is typically responsible for mediating allergic reactions? Oh, I know this. Mm. I, I know this. Do you what want me to? Yeah. E. Yeah, it's E. So there's G, M, A, D, and then there's E. E stands for allergies. <laughs> so allergies. Th1 cells actually downregulate Th2 cells. They have an inhibitory effect on their development, and here's where the theory comes in. And it's, it's just a theory. There's not a lot of studies on this. Researchers and scientists were studying prevalence of hay fever and allergic eczema and noted that these allergic conditions were less common in children from larger families. There's not evidence to support the causation yet, but actually upwards of 30 studies that display the correlation, which to me is kind of significant. Is there anything that would suggest this could maybe be to like over-diagnosis or that it was under-diagnosed before? Like allergies or...? Underdiagnosis in the past, perhaps, uh, but it's, it's hard to say. I think that the correlation with the larger families is kind of indicative that there is some kind of causative yeah. relationship. Heritability. Yeah. Essentially, children exposed to bacterial and viral pathogens at younger ages develop an immune system less likely to result in severe allergic reactions because of that downregulation. So most notably, respiratory or dermatological allergies. I don't know if this correlation has been noted among food allergies in particular, but does that make sense? So if they've got more interaction with viral and bacterial pathogens than their Th1 are going to downregulate the Th2s, which would be the overzealous response to allergic pathogens. Makes so perfect sense to me. Just your body learning not to overreact to stuff exactly, like that. Exactly, because it's encountering things that it should be taking care of, and it's like, all right, we've got to focus on viruses and bacteria. But if you don't have those interactions, like I would get sick as a kid all the time because my siblings would bring something home or vice versa. I would bring something home and they would get sick. That's like, you have siblings. Yeah, I have eight. You have siblings? You I have, have a brother. brother, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, one time I got swine flu and he was the one that had to take Tamiflu. He never got sick, but it was so funny because the doctor is like, yeah, I want you to take, uh, you know, lemon juice and honey. And then he hands my brother this big bottle of really nasty liquid medicine. And he's like, yeah, you need to take this. And he was so upset about it. Wait, you were... I was sick, but he said I was like too late in it for the Ostalamvir to really make a difference. Okay. No, um, I am I'm really bad about pronunciation. That's okay. He hasn't had that class so yet. Maybe Ostalamvir. Ostalamvir. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. We I said actually, that in unison. That was really nice. That, that yeah. was 
Okay. No high fives. No Reddit? No, sorry. Uh-huh. So severe cases of allergic reactions can result in anaphylaxis, and without swift intervention, usually in the form of intramuscular epinephrine, can be fatal. Shellfish, peanuts, bee stings, or certain medical allergies could cause anaphylaxis in a person with a sensitivity. So despite what we know and what we still have to learn about allergies, there's one thing for certain. At least allergies aren't contagious. I mean, you can't get allergies from a bug bite or something. Actually, you can. Whoa. Let me tell you about a little something called galactose alpha-1,3 galactose. Galactose is a monosaccharide, as we may remember from whatever class those came up in whatever. last year. Whatever. Was it pharmacology? Probably. Medchem? I really don't know. The repetition of galactose refers to the fact that alpha-gal is composed of two galactose molecules. The alpha-1,3 refers to their orientation and binding locations. Alpha means away, right? Yeah. Something like that. Oh, and gal, galactose. Galactose, alpha, gal. So all I know is that we did indeed cross paths with the aforementioned saccharin molecule. While the rendezvous wasn't memorable, it certainly happened. The alpha-gal allergy, otherwise known as the mammalian meat allergy. So this carbohydrate is completely harmless in the capacity that humans usually encounter it. It's present in mammalian cells of non-primates. So humans and most monkeys do not have this molecule. It's present in beef, pork, and lamb. When you eat meat, particularly red meat, it may take a while to digest because of the complexity of the molecules and the lengthy breakdown process, but your body can handle it, typically within two days. Pepsin plays a large role. It's a wonderful little enzyme secreted from chief cells in the stomach and breaks down proteins of which meat has a lot. Carbohydrates like alpha-gal could go a few different ways depending on their composition. Lactase, amylase, and maltase are just a few enzymes specifically good at shredding complex sugars apart. The enzyme that breaks down alpha-gal is alpha-galactosidase. Enzymes are pretty easy to remember. Don't get any enzymes wrong on your upcoming exams, or we're going to be really disappointed. I, I try not to. I just make up a word and stick ace on the end of it. Basically, it works out. you will never fail like that. <laughs> well, in most cases. Except for renin. Renin ace. That's the only enzyme that... It is just renin. Yeah. Renin and then an ace. That's awful. It is. It's terrible. Well, the enzyme doesn't play a role in the allergy, and this is the last that we'll hear of it. So I want you to imagine something. Close your eyes. All right. For those listening at home, you can close your eyes too unless you're driving or performing dental surgery, in which case, please, don't. please, please, please don't, please don't. Please. Okay. <laughs> Imagine, it's a beautiful spring morning. You're lying in the tall grass. You know you've got to mow it soon or the homeowners association will send another threatening letter. But right now, you've got other things on your mind. Blades of grass tickle your thigh. It's a bit chilly for shorts, but you don't feel like changing. The sun's warmth kisses your soft skin, baby smooth and pale from weeks of basking in the vapid glow of nothing but the TV in the microwave. Your bones hurt, but a little vitamin D deficiency never hurt anyone. The tickling of the overgrown lawn is becoming more persistent. Kind of annoying, really. Almost like a sharp poke in a few places. You stand up. It's almost lunchtime. Grandma is making her world-famous bacon cheeseburger casserole. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't miss it for the world. Okay. I tried so hard. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was so good. So, as we've heard with this narrative, this is the way many victims of alpha-gal contract the unpleasant syndrome. A completely innocuous trip outside, resulting in a long-term, sometimes lifelong allergy to bacon cheeseburger casserole. It doesn't even take a prolonged hunting trip to incur the wrath of the Lone Star Tick. Despite its stately name, this little pest isn't isolated to Texas. 
No, the Lone Star Tick has been known to bite innocent bystanders as far southeast as Florida, all the way up to Maine and deep into the Midwest. Lone Star Ticks aren't satisfied with just an embargo on 80% of the menu at Outback Steakhouse. Tender and juicy steak. Wood fire grilled bone in ribeye. Fire grilled sirloin. Sirloin portobello. 18 ounce center cut sirloin. Old holiday steaks. Only at Stay State Outhouse. No. Once they're done slurping up your sweet, sweet blood, they could infect you with rickettsia or lichia, borrelia, not to mention Lyme disease or Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Ticks, including the Lone Star ticks, are arachnids, like spiders. They've got sharp jaws and attach themselves to your skin to feed. There's a plethora of wrong ways to remove a tick, including nail polish or even holding a lighter to the skin, but don't use these methods. They're only going to hurt you and potentially break off the tick's jaws in your skin, increasing your risk of infection. This is from the CDC. Using fine-tipped tweezers, grasp the tick close to the skin and pull upwards with steady, even pressure. Do not yank. Place the removed tick in alcohol or flush down the toilet in a Viking funeral pyre. The last part's not from the CDC, that's from me. <laughs> the key is to remove the tick before the illness can be transmitted. In most of these cases, the disease takes a certain amount of time to be transmitted. They're bacterial, and ticks need to be attached for about a day before they start to transmit diseases. In regards to alpha-gal, it's actually really unclear how long it takes for the carbohydrate to be transmitted into the body after a bite, but I think it's safe to assume it's not going to follow the rules of bacteria. Because it's a compound in the tick's saliva, it's most likely transmitted very quickly, if not immediately as soon as the tick gets to slurping. Before we talk about the mechanism and immunology aspect of the alpha-gal allergy, here's an interview with one Kelly Kerr, my wife, about her real-life experience with alpha-gal. Right. I am sitting here with my incredible wife, Kelly Kerr. You may be familiar with her work. She does the musical intro for our podcast. My cat just jumped up on my lap. I'm sorry about that distraction. All right, Kelly, we're going to ask you a couple of questions today about your experience with AlphaGal. Okay, that sounds great, Shane. Husband. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your run-in with the Lone Star Tick. So I, I don't remember too many specifics about what I was doing when it happened. I just know that I had been outside with my mom and my dad. And I got back to school. I was in college at the time for the weekend when I found a little tick underneath my right earlobe. And I pulled it off immediately and recognized it by the white dot on its back. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely a Lone Star tick. It was indeed, and it was very big because it had been there for days. On your ear for days? Yeah, I didn't know it was there, and it had been there for probably two days. Oh, wow. When did you first realize that something was wrong? I was at a museum looking at a Gone with the Wind exhibit when I started to feel like a tremendous pain in my stomach, and I sat down in this little dark room, and I was watching behind-the-scenes footage of Gone with the Wind of, like, Vivian Lee and Clark Gable. And I was sweating to the point where I was almost crying because of the pain. And it wasn't, like, a normal stomach ache. It was terrible. So I ended up passing. It passed. I sat there and rewatched the little clip, like, three times over. And the pain passed. I got up. 
and left with my friend. And when we were in the car, he suggested that we go to Little Caesars on the way home and get a pepperoni pizza. And so I, I said, heck yeah, I want a pepperoni pizza. And we got this pepperoni pizza and I ate three slices because I was so hungry. I had had bacon that morning and then I ate the pepperoni. And as soon as I got back home, I was on my absolute deathbed. My mom had to bring me a bunch of like Pepto-Bismol and she just kept urging me to throw up and I was crying and screaming and it was dramatic. Wow, that's pretty traumatizing. Yeah, it's, it sucked. How did you come to the conclusion that your problem was related to the tick bite and alpha-gal allergy? Well, my doctor, my pediatrician at the time, I was still seeing him. He asked about that after doing some blood tests and finding no correlation to the reason why I would be sick after eating red meat. Mm -hmm. But it, it always consistently happened after eating red meat. Like I, I had an Arby's sandwich. Mm -hmm. questionable I know you don't like those <laughs> but I had an Arby sandwich and I got sick after that and then I realized I had gotten sick after the pepperoni and I had gotten sick after the bacon so I just put two and two together that every time I was eating red meat I was getting sick and my mom had a similar allergy but my pediatrician at the time was the one who diagnosed that it was more than likely Lone Star tick correlated hmm. How long did your symptoms and the allergies, how, did, how long did they persist? I think it was seven, seven or eight years. I, I don't really remember, but it was my freshman year of college or my, um, my senior year of high school or freshman year of college, but they lasted up until we were married, right? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So that's how long we got married in 2019. It was 2012 when it started. Seven years seven years it lasted for seven years yeah and i remember during the first like maybe year or so that we were dating i if you would not be eating red meat i would also not eat red meat mm -hmm. and you had to tell your parents to to yeah. make a special meal for me <laughs> <laughs> wow i forgot about that yeah so they don't do that now but they used to at what point did you start to ex you were you were sort of experimenting almost to see if you could eat red meat again because we had read about it a little bit online and we realized that after a certain period of time it does tend to fade yeah i wanted to see if it had faded so i one day when we were living at our apartment i we lived right next to a wendy's and so I decided to go to the Wendy's one day just to get a burger, just to test it. I was feeling a little frisky. That's pretty adventurous. Yeah, and I got a burger and I ate the whole thing. And then I texted you and you were like, what the heck? Why'd you eat the whole thing? And I said, I was hungry <laughs> and nothing happened. I was fine. It, yeah. it was really good. I enjoyed it. I'm glad. So what is right now, what is your favorite mammalian meat? So pig's a mammal. Pig's a mammal. <laughs> okay. Um, it's definitely horse. No, I'm just kidding. It's not horse. I've eaten horse before and it's kind of gross. It's like stringy. You ate horse by choice? Yeah, I ate horse when I went to France and studied abroad and it also made me sick. <laughs> We're keeping all of this. We're not cutting it. Please cut it. Okay, no, I'll tell so you. So what is your real, what's your favorite mammalian meat? Um, I really like bacon, to be honest. Yeah? Yeah, nothing Bacon's can beat one. bacon for me. I, I don't really actually like steak all that much. Um, the steak that you gave me like last week was the first steak I had had since 2012. Do you remember that? It was like not last week, but three months ago. Yeah, the Red Robin. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really love it, but uh, maybe I would if it were another type of steak. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Well, 
Kelly Kerr, we really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for coming out. Thanks. It's my house. <laughs> that's, that's where this is. And now, a word from our sponsor. Once that little carbohydrate enters the body and starts floating around where it's not supposed to is where the immune system freaks out. Picture it like a spy getting caught deep behind enemy lines. The body's like, hey, what the heck are you doing here? You're supposed to be in the stomach. So they mount defenses against the intruder, starting the whole spicy immune response cascade. T cells and antigen presenting cells encounter the carbohydrate in the tissue or the bloodstream, and they sound the alarm, secreting cytokines, interleukin-4 and 13, which then differentiate B cells into IgE plasma cells. So now your body's got an army of plasma cells, IgE cannons primed and ready to mow down the next unlucky alpha-gal molecule stupid enough to come back. When it happens again and you're digesting that mouth-watering bacon cheeseburger casserole, your body springs into action. Flooding your system with IgE, activating mast cells and basophils who churn out histamine, leukotrienes, prostaglandins, and cytokines, giving your body that characteristic allergic reaction. Like we mentioned earlier, alpha-gal is present in most mammalian meat products, including beef, pork, and lamb. However, it's also present in small amounts in some dairy products, too, like milk, cheese, and cream. It can also be found in gelatin and used in foods as a thickening agent. Can you guys think of some other foods that have gelatin in them? Uh, like aspic. Yeah. I love aspic. I don't know. Cake. Does um, cake have gelatin? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. So chewy candy, like gummy bears, gummy worms, marshmallows, candy corn, fruit snacks, Rice Krispie treats, Starbursts, Pop-Tarts, frosted cereals like mini wheats, lots mm. of beer and wine if it's not considered vegan. Specifics of the allergies vary from person to person, with some people experiencing only mild reactions to meat, but others are more severely afflicted, experiencing severe anaphylaxis with most, if not all, of the products that we've just listed. Not only do many food products contain alpha-gal, but there's a slew of medications that contain this compound as well. Cetuximab, the anti-cancer drug and monoclonal antibody, contains alpha-gal in high abundance in the FAB region of the antibody. Remember that? The FAB is like the, the, the antlers, hands. yeah, the hands, whatever. The Y portion. Not the, not the stem. The monoclonal antibody is chimeric, meaning it's derived from both mice and humans. The portion containing the alpha-gal, can you guess who that came from? No. You mean who? The mouse. It's from the mice. What? Wait, what? What is from what? What is from the, the alpha-gal. Oh, that confused me. Sorry. I'm still confused. Now, now, I, now I know what you're talking so about. So if the monoclonal antibody has alpha-gal somewhere in it, and it's made from both mice and human genes, which genes gave it the alpha-gal? Oh, okay. Because it's now not I see what you're saying. Yeah, because we don't have it. I I thought right. you were saying that we were getting alpha gal like in its isolated form directly right. from mice. Sorry, sorry about that. Sorry, no, that was me. That was a bad. Question. That's my fault. So it's from the mouse because mice are mammals. So cetuximab is uh, used for non-small cell lung cancer and colorectal cancer. It was developed in the late 80s, and at some point in the approval process, they began noticing that people primarily in the southeastern United States were having anaphylaxis reactions. Luckily, I think in this case, cetuximab is given an IV therapy and not self-administered, so patients were quickly treated for their resulting anaphylaxis. But this caught people thinking. Serum tests displayed elevated IgE, and patient history reported an increased incidence of tick bites. Here's a quote from a later study. The patients often reported history of tick bites, the significance of which is unclear at present. So scientists were just like, huh? <laughs> they, had, they had no idea. The scientists didn't know the connection and they were like, I mean, whatever, moving on. 
It wasn't long after, actually. It was 15 years later in 2002, Thomas Platts Mills, an allergy researcher with the University of Virginia School of Medicine, identified that the alpha-gal allergy was from Lone Star Ticks. He continues to research and publish in regard to allergies and IgE-mediated immune responses. This guy is a, a genius. I read one of his more recent papers. He's still working for the University of Virginia. Lots of, lots of cool publications. Most recent IgE and alpha-gal publication was from 2017. So he's still, he's still churning it out out there, up in Virginia. Persistence. Yeah, he's killing it. He's like 78. Oh, yeah. So tuximab isn't the only drug with alpha-gal components. Any drug derived from mammals has the potential to contain alpha-gal, particularly those derived from pork or animal innards. What are some medications derived from pork that we know of? Oh, that's, that's tough. We just learned about one. Pork mucosa insulin, right? In the old insulin, yes. Yeah. Porcine insulin. Yeah, What's something else that we learned about more recently? Did we learn about something more recently? Anticoag. It's an anticoagulant. Is it? Yes. I don't, I don't remember. Heparin. This. Oh, heparin. Unfractionated heparin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. we got heparin from pigs. Yeah. I love pigs. They're my favorite animal. I didn't know that. Oh, wait. that Was that the thing that was from? The pig intestines. Hep yeah. Pig in, wait, is it pig, pig mucosal lining or something? Mucosal like lining, but it's from their intestines. That's what yeah. I was thinking of was heparin. I'm pretty sure it's their intestinal. I got that question wrong. Epithelial, so. <laughs> yeah. I said sheep oh, intestine. Oh, bummer. Yeah. yeah. So heparin is derived from pork intestines. We used to get insulin from pork, like you mentioned, but now it's derived from augmented yeast cells. But a lot of thyroid medications are also from pork products, like Armour Thyroid or NP Thyroid. I think those are both from pork products. But there's something else that is absolutely ubiquitous in medications. If your allergy is severe enough, this could be extremely problematic for you. It's something I mentioned earlier. Gelatin? Yes. Where's gelatin in the pharmacy? Most. I mean... I would say it would probably, I, I don't know exactly where it would be most. I mean, could it be lotions, cream, maybe an extended release yeah. system? Capsules. Maybe like cap capsules. capsules. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Maybe oh, creams. Capsule. I hadn't even thought about creams. It could be like a thickening agent in creams, but it's in capsules. Yeah. Or, I mean, also maybe like a, an Opana-like extended release system where you have the medication encased in kind of a, a yeah. locust bean gum-like yeah. product. Maybe, maybe there as well. There's definitely lots of possibilities for locations for gelatin. gum might have gelatin. I don't know. <laughs> maybe so. I didn't even think about that gum, too. So, yeah, some capsules use vegetable gelatin, but you'd have to go to some pretty extreme lengths to determine which medications are safe to consume and which are not. Even, even tablets could have filler derived from gelatin. Let's open up a quick discussion on this next product. First, I want to ask, what allergy should you ask about before giving a flu shot? Mm. God, I know this. You guys need to know this. I know. Mickey, say it louder for the microphones. Eggs. 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 I knew that. Okay. So we know that flu shots are grown in fertilized chicken eggs, and this has been the primary method of growing these vaccines for many years because the virus has to be able to replicate in something. But newer vaccines, particularly one called Flucovax, are being developed in, do you know what it is? I, I do not. Now I remember that I'd heard the egg thing before and I'm ashamed of myself for That's not okay. remembering. What are, they, what are they being cultured in now, do you know? Not the foggiest. It's canine kidney cells. It takes a matter of days instead of months so I think it's definitely going to catch on as the primary method of viral vaccine development. There isn't any evidence or research on this that I could find. It's just a discussion here. Do you think the administration of a flu shot containing viral particles cultured from canine kidney cells could result in a reaction in a patient with alpha-gal allergy? Well, they're a non-primate mammal, aren't they? So they what are. you said earlier, I, I would think so, yeah. Right, and the alpha-gal is particularly present in the innards, so the organs, because it's, it's an epithelial tissue. So I think it's, it's possible. It's possible. 
I suppose. Isn't the, the oral polio vaccine grown in monkey kidneys? Just, I thought about that for a second. I have no idea. I, I, if Maybe. I remember right, my virology professor, he said that they would take like polio and they would start growing it in mon- like uh, sections of monkey kidney. And they eventually this would cause them to weaken. There would be a certain percentage of the polio cells that would weaken enough that they were attenuated and you could use them in the oral formulation you of the took, vaccine. You took virology? Yeah, I took virology in undergrad. Nice. Our professor. I didn't get to do that. I took stats. I, yeah, I took stats I t- and calculus. I took a stats class too, and my teacher had the personality of a plain saltine cracker, and I could not handle it. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so here's another note on Flucovax. This is just like an interesting little little thought digression. I thought we should, we should go down this tangent. It'd be interesting to talk about. So I actually did look at the clinical trials as part of the FDA approval process, and within the exclusion criteria, if you heard for human subjects was patients who experience anaphylaxis to any components of the vaccine or even hypersensitivity to any of the components. I don't know if this would include some kind of subclause or unspoken mention of not necessarily alpha-gal, but if a patient said they're allergic to meat, I would think that if I were part of the panel that chooses subjects, I would be like, no way. So like I said, it's not studied. It's not likely necessarily. I've never heard anything else about it. I was just, it just got me thinking. So it would depend on, on whether the cells being used actually ex- present the alpha-gal epitope because the cells are augmented by scientists and could potentially be altered to no longer present the compound. Not only that, the final amount of the flu shot, if there are even any, is so minute that it's probably better to get the flu shot. They've got EpiPens in the pharmacy or doctor's office. Another thing that sets alpha-gal allergy apart from typical allergies is the delayed onset of symptoms, which can also make this really tough to diagnose. Most allergies, including food allergies, tend to elicit a reaction rather quickly, within minutes. The mouth and lips start to tingle, the tongue swells up, the allergic symptoms don't set in until three to six hours after consuming meat. According to one of Platts Mill's recent studies, this is due to the digestion, absorption, and transportation of the glycoproteins and glycolipids taking a lot longer. If this is meat you ate with dinner, that means you'll likely wake up in the middle of the night with extreme nausea and hives. As you can imagine, most people wouldn't at first consider this an allergy, experiencing it for the first time, maybe a stomach bug or a 24-hour virus even food poisoning before they go with allergy. Another characteristic unique to the alpha-gal allergy is anecdotal evidence that many people afflicted will outgrow the allergy. Platts-Mills theorizes this is due to the sensitization doesn't involve long-lived plasma cells, which we know can grow and live over 60 years your whole life, which is why many allergies are lifelong. But for some reason yet uncovered by Platts-Mills, I think he's on this next one though, this sensitization involves primarily short-lived plasma cells. So the allergy could fade in between five to 15 years and has been known to disappear in as short as one year. However, I think that's more of an exception than the rule. Right now, the only way to prevent or treat alpha-gal is avoidance, avoiding tick-prone areas like woods or tall grass, and if you happen to have the allergy, avoiding mammalian meat products. This sounds bleak, but I don't think it's the end. We keep talking about monoclonal antibodies like they're the new panacea, but they really are amazing in what they can treat. Personally, I I don't know much about them. I'm hoping to learn more over the next few years. But like cetuximab's ability to trigger the allergic response, although this was mostly because it contained the alpha-gal, perhaps a monoclonal antibody could be designed to treat alpha-gal allergy by either binding to the molecule after digestion, lessening the immune response by agglutinating the molecule for disposable macrophages, or selectively targeting the IgE plasma cells that are MHC2 positive for alpha-gal. Immunology is immensely complicated, and I know I'm simplifying things, but I think there's hope out there for a treatment, if not a whole cure. Possibly. The question is, is a drug company going to develop something like that for alpha-gal allergy? 
If there's a market for it, yeah. There's is a there there's a, a pretty there's a pretty strong online community surrounding AlphaGal. There really is. It's interesting. I see. So I, I don't know if you said, but is there any evidence like the percentage of the general population that has this? Do we have any figures on that? I or? don't have any figures on that, but that's an interesting question. I, I can. There might that. not be any like good longitudinal studies on that, or but that that would be interesting to know. And I also wonder if this is at all heritable, which, if, based on the large family's remark, it, it could be. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know, but I wonder if there's any parallels with, say, like mast cell activation syndrome, hmm. or I think that was the name of it. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. Or uh, I haven't, no. It rings a bell. I, I, I remember the first time I saw this, it was on some, like, TLC show, like, <laughs> six years ago, so I might be way off base with this, but... There was a girl, and she was essentially just like a, a, a bubble girl because her condition, which if I remember right was genetic, just caused her to her allergies to shuffle. And she would just every so often would like develop new allergies and lose allergies, and she never knew on a given in a given period of time what was going to trigger <clears throat> potentially anaphylaxis and death in her, if I remember right. It's like a bad superpower. Um, yeah, it's the opposite. It's and like a super cap, yeah. super handicap. I'm allergy girl. I'm, I might watch me balloon. Ah, I might look this up right now. But con continue. I'm Where's the EpiPen? Help! <laughs> He's got holsters for him, like Blackbeard with all the chest holes. Oh my god! Dude, all right, so it's between one and three percent of the population that have alpha gal allergy. Estimate, yeah, between one, one and three percent. That that's honestly more than I that's expected. Way that's more than I expected. That's like a I lot said, of people. And they're all on Facebook. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's the entire population of Facebook it's a, that was made for alpha gas. Yeah. <laughs> I think they are probably underreporting because of the difficulty in diagnosing this. Yeah, I, mean, so, are, I bet are, in are reality you, it's probably 99% of the population. Are you sure it's not like skewed up by people that think they have it and just say they have it? Where I think you'd say about? I have food poisoning more than you'd say I have alpha gal allergy. But that doesn't well, make you feel special on Facebook. Yeah, I was about to say some Maybe. people definitely look for validation by malingering. Not that I think that's a huge percentage of the population, but especially when you're talking about these little known illnesses, they're really hard to prove or disprove. I've definitely seen cases and, and looked at them of people on the internet just saying like, oh, I have 75 different diseases. I'm, I'm special, especially on Tumblr. Not as much on Facebook, but... Oh, Tumblr. Um, I miss those days. I miss when Tumblr was actually useful. Oh, it, so at, at a point it was. Now it... it mm. It's complete. Shame. For shame. I'm just chatting. All right, so... Do you want to cut it there? Yeah, that's a wrap. Okay, cool. That was good. Man, Shane, that was really good. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, no problem. That was good. <laughs> that, that was pretty we'll interesting. Thanks, bye. Time to go. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.